Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. All right. Sorry, Alan, no early Christmas present for you. <clears throat> that almost happened, though. Let me, before I start preaching, while some of the, the parents are still making their way back from dropping their kids off, let me just share with you, in the spirit of just being transparent with you, what happened to me this past week. All week, I had this weird calendar senior moment, and I thought that today was our Christmas service. So all week, I've been writing, working on, studying for my Christmas message. And I went out last night to Starbucks to put the finishing touches on it, make some slides, and I looked at the whole prayer, the preaching calendar, and I realized at 8 p.m. last night, I, I've made a terrible mistake. Tomorrow is the 15th of December, not the 22nd. Now, if, you, if you've ever had a teacher do public speaking, that's like your worst nightmare is the night before you have to go. You don't have anything. <laughs> and I looked at the calendar, and what I realized was the message on deck was a message entitled Persevering Prayer. So that's what I did. I, I sat in a Starbucks and just came before God in desperate prayer and said, Lord, this is not going to be the product of deep and careful study. It's going to be a message you're going to have to download into my brain and into my heart and teach me experientially what desperate prayer looks like and be gracious and faithful. And so I sat there and I prayed and I prayed. And then I read the text like 10 times. And then, just like magic, it all started to come together. And so this message you're going to hear this morning um, is not the product of human straining or careful study. It is, I really believe, something that God has given to me as a conviction uh, in the 11th hour, and I want to share with you. Okay? And I think it's an interesting twist because I'm going to preach on prayer, and there would be no message this morning apart from an answer to prayer. So let me give you... The title of the message is called Persevering Prayer, and it comes from a parable. This is the last message of our series on the parables of Jesus, stories that Jesus told about what his kingdom and what it, what it means to be a Christian is all about. It comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read that passage out of the NIV. Here's what the Word of God says. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And he said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for the chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
If you want to know the truth about your, your spiritual condition, if you want to know where you really are spiritually, where do you look? If I were to ask you today, think about it, process it, and tell me, share with me, where are you at spiritually, and how do you say, how do you come up with that answer? Where will you look? I think there's a lot of places we can look to get some measure of our spiritual health. I mean, you can look at your relationship with the money. I've spoken on that a number of times. And you can look at your, your relationship with the money and find out something about your deepest values or where your heart truly lives, right? That's what Jesus says. You can look at your evangelistic witness. How often and how joyfully, how fruitfully do you share and give away this faith, this good news of Jesus Christ? And when you look at your evangelistic witness, you're going to find out something true about your belief in the gospel, the the way that you treasure your own salvation. You can look at your devotional life every morning and every night, whenever you happen to have and say, that, that measure will tell you something important about how true, how, how, how important you believe the word of God is, how important it is to have a relationship with Jesus and not just follow a religion. So there are a lot of places you can look to get some idea of your true spiritual condition. But I think if you want to know where your faith really is, one of the most reliable places to look is at your prayer life. And when you look at your prayer life, and this is as true for me as I'm sure it is for many of you, what you discover about your faith is not always terribly encouraging, but it's instructive. You want to know where your faith really is, examine carefully the way that you relate to prayer. Now, I think that's important because perhaps no other Christian activity is as closely linked to faith as prayer is. Think about it for a minute. When do you pray and what do you pray for? I mean, most people pray when they're prompted to pray, but what is it that usually drives us to our knees and makes us feel compelled to pray? Well, let me give you some examples. I think we pray when we face a situation over which we have no control and no power. I think we pray when we need to know what's coming and we can't see in the dark and we're, we're, we're just stumbling about in the fog. So we're saying, God, show me. I'm confused. I'm ignorant. I don't know. I need to see. And so we pray when we're blind and we need light shed on our future. I think we pray when there's something we wish would be different about ourselves or about someone we love, but no change is coming and you're desperately frustrated and you know you can't even change yourself. Have you ever been there? I've been so frustrated at times with myself. I just beat my chest and say, why can't I even change me? And so you pray because you realize you're powerless even to change yourself. I think we pray when we're afraid. When we come upon something that truly, truly scares us and we realize we've run out of courage and I'm not going to make it if God doesn't give me some peace. Maybe we pray when we want something so badly, but we simply have no way of acquiring it by ourselves. Maybe it's a material thing. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's physical healing. And you know you want it so badly, but no one on this earth can give it to you. You can't make it happen with your resources. And so out of desperate need, you cry out to God and say, God, this is what I want. This is what I need. 
Only you can give it to me. These are the times we pray. We're driven naturally to pray. Or sometimes you pray when you're supposed to preach the next morning and you ain't got a sermon. And you pray. You see what I'm getting at? I think we pray when we reach the limit of ourselves. I think until that point, we are, especially as American Christians, we will always do what we can do. In fact, isn't that a saying in America? You got to do what you got to do. There's no more American saying that you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, but what do you do when you can't do anything? That's when we pray. We pray when we have reached the limit of ourselves and we acknowledge. And that's why I believe prayer is the is one of the ultimate acknowledgments that I am not all-knowing and I am not all-powerful. I finally come upon a situation where I don't have the resources or the power or the connections to make this thing happen. And it's the ultimate acknowledgement that we are at God's mercy and in God's hands. We pray when prayer is all that we have left. And after we've said our prayers... All that we can do is wait for God to answer. Have you ever been there? If you've never been there, you're just not awake. You're not paying attention. If you live long enough, you will get to that place where you have reached the limit, the end of yourself. And if you cannot turn to God, there's no one left. Maybe you're in that very place today. Listen to what Jesus says in his parable. Can we get that next slide up? In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And in that same town, there was a widow who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Jesus uses this parable and he introduces these two characters in the story to set up for us a picture, a context of total powerlessness. Now, I don't think we Americans handle powerlessness very well. Everything in American culture is driven towards empowering ourselves so that we don't have to rely on anyone else, so that when we reach trouble, we can get ourselves out of it. If you think about the way our entire society is built in terms of fitness, strength, financial well-being, all those things are designed so that we can bulletproof our lives from trials. People jog so that they don't get sick. They don't, you know how many times I've said to people, I'm trying to get fit because I want to stick around for my children as if my push-ups and sit-ups are going to guarantee a long life. I'm a pastor and I'm sucked into that sort of self-reliant spirit of what it is to be an American. But this is a picture of total powerlessness. In Jesus' day, there was no greater symbol of powerlessness than a widow or an orphan. Because at the most foundational level, If you don't have family, you really have nothing in this world. Everyone else can say, well, whatever, you're not my problem, but family can't say that. So when you have no family, you have no one. And for the widow whose husband has died, she has nobody left to protect her, to provide for her, to advocate for her. In today's society, it'd be a little different because women are empowered. In Jesus' day, a widow was most to be pitied. You you add on top of that that this particular widow in this particular town had an adversary who was tormenting her, who was treating her unjustly and evidently had enough power and influence that he was getting away with it. He or she was getting away with it. 
my suspicion is it was a she. I think her tormentor was another woman. Uh, it's just my experience has been most women are tormented most by other women. <clears throat> so here's this woman. She has an adversary who's treating her unjustly, and she has no male relative to step in and advocate for her in court. And so this is now not just a widow, but a hyper-widow, a super-widow. What Jesus is trying to say is this is a very helpless, powerless, pathetic being. And then you add to that, well, at least she can go to court and get some justice. But she goes to the court, and she happens to draw the judge who doesn't give a crud about anybody. Look at, flash that slide up again, would you? Look at how this judge is described. She goes and she goes, oh man, I thought I was going to get some justice. I end up in the courtroom with this judge, the one who doesn't care what God thinks about him, the one who doesn't care what people think about him. I just read a horrible story about a 16-year-old in Texas named Ethan Couch, who was drunk at the age of 16, driving 70 miles an hour, plowed into four people, killed them instantly, and the judge let him off. She let him off because he was so rich and so spoiled, he never learned about consequences and should not be held responsible for what he did. So his sentence after killing four people driving drunk was to go to a country club rehab facility in San Diego for a year. An outrage. I think a real miscarriage of justice. I wrote an email to that judge, a long, heartfelt, well-thought-out email. I expect never to get a reply. This judge happens to be on her last term. She's about to retire. What she does this last year costs her nothing because she doesn't need a job after next year. And I think this is that kind of judge. A judge who does not have to care what anyone thinks, who renders judgment without regard to any sense of real justice or compassion, is just going through the motions, is callous, cold, disconnected. And that's the judge that this woman drew in court. The reason he's setting up such a pathetic story is to show us this is the true posture that we're in when we pray our purest prayers. If you have never gotten to this place in your heart, then you're probably living under the illusion that you are a person who is free of any real need for God. You have bought your way into a place of false security where you believe that everything that happens to you, you can dig your way out of. And what, what Jesus is saying is every human life will be driven to a place where we will stand in the place of this widow, where we will feel completely stripped of power. And maybe it's, it's not going to come in the financial realm. If you have a lot of money, then your hardest trials may not come in the area of finances. It may come in another area you have no control over. A person you love and trust and need may decide one day that they no longer need you. This body which you desperately need may betray you one day. Every one of us at some point in our lives are going to be brought to a place where this widow was, a place of total powerlessness. We have reached the limit of ourselves, and the only thing I've got left is that if God does not rescue me, I'm finished here. And he told them, this, 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 his disciples, this um, parable, and clearly, explicitly states in verse 1 why. He told them this parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. I think what he's saying is when it comes to prayer, perseverance is one of the most important aspects of our prayer life. Now, I know some of you are getting ready to get a nice nap. And if you haven't slept well, don't fake it. Don't fight it. Just get, get yourself some rest. It's all right. Don't, don't distract me with the whole oil derrick thing and just, you know, 
Let it come. Let it come. Enjoy yourself. But part of the reason you're getting ready to check out is you think that this is going to go the route of every sermon, which is, well, you know, persevering prayer is when you don't feel like praying, pray another five minutes. Because that's what we do. You pray longer, harder. When you don't want to pray anymore, that's when you pray more. That's not what I'm going to tell you this morning. I hate that kind of message about prayer. I have never grown in prayer because someone told me that's how we pray. Maybe it's true, but it's never been true to me. And I can't hear that, and I can certainly not preach that. There is a place for discipline and willpower and all that. But when it comes to prayer, I'm here to tell you that I don't believe anybody really grows in their prayer life from that message. So don't check out now thinking that's what I'm going to say, because it ain't what I'm going to say at all. I think there are two things this parable brings out about what it means to persevere in prayer. And I'm going to give you the first one. Uh, and like I said, I gave you the disclaimer, so don't check out just because you read this. The first point is don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. This widow, in her plight and total powerlessness, the one thing she wouldn't stop doing was going and pestering this judge. She kept coming over and over and over to his court, pleading her case. And he ignored her as many times as he could, but eventually he couldn't take it anymore. Like so many male-female relationships, she wore him down. Women, that's a, a source of great power. He might be able to punch you harder than you can punch him, but you can punch him longer than he can punch you. You can wear a man down. And I think that's what happened here. She kept going and going. So he goes, please stop talking. I will give you whatever you ask if you will disappear from my life. Now, I'm not giving this as marriage advice or anything like that. Uh, it's not an instruction. I'm just saying that's what happened. She just kept coming and coming and coming to him, and she, he just couldn't get rid of her. There's something about that persistence that is an important measure of persevering prayer. That's not the interesting part of it. Everyone knows that part of persevering is not giving up on it, but the real question is how do you keep coming after this? How do you continue to come after somebody? You know, Martin Luther, he used to put out these little things called table talks back in the 1500s. If you don't know who Martin Luther is, he's one of the guys who was the primary reformer of the church during a period of history when the Catholic church was not at its healthiest and Christianity needed to be rescued from this giant infrastructure of corruption and power and wealth. And that's what happened is Martin Luther reformed the church and it needs reforming again, but he was one of those leading figures. And he, said, he used to write these little devotional words called table talk, just reflections. I think it's really a, a um, Renaissance age blog is what it was. Okay? It was the first form of blogging. And one time he wrote about this. He happened to be eating, and he, he was one of these guys who was sort of like, you know, I'm just going to eat, eat bread and meat. And with this very, very basic diet, he had to chunk of meat on his table, and his puppy happened to be standing right there. And he noticed the entire time he's eating, his puppy's just sitting like this. Have, anybody have a dog? Okay, I have a dog. I have two dogs, but one of them doesn't count to me. So I have, I have a dog. And my dog sits right by my feet every time I'm eating, and she just stares at me like this. And every time I move my fork, she follows what's on the fork like this. And Martin Luther observed the same thing. He goes, look at this dog. I'm eating the whole time this dog's just fixated on the meat and won't let his eyes off. And he's waiting there, hoping beyond hope that maybe a morsel will fall off the table or I'll be in a generous mood and throw him a scrap. And maybe at some point in the past, he had done exactly that. He'd say, hey, here, puppy, have a little scrap. And I do that 
more, probably more often than my vet would want me to do, I'll throw a little bone or something, you know, because it's a dog, and she's my dog, and I like her. And so if I'm eating peanuts, I throw a couple peanuts, and she gobbles them up, and she waits. And now every time I eat, she's waiting, and she's fixated. And what Martin Luther wrote was, if I could learn to pray the way that that dog stares at the meat, I would understand prayer. Hoping beyond hope, with tenacity, with long-suffering, where else am I going to go? There is nobody else in this family who's ever going to give me any meat. I'm going to stay right here because this is the only source. And I think that's something really instructive in that. If you guys follow my Facebook at all, if you're, we're Facebook friends, you read about my nightmare flying weekend last weekend coming back from Washington, D.C. Um, we arrived in Chicago, and after we landed late, we sat on the tarmac, and Jeannie sat in the parking lot of the Displains Oasis for three and a half hours waiting to get off the plane. And here's what I noticed during those three and a half hours. It was not a quiet and calm and peaceful three and a half hours on that plane. Everybody was in a sour mood because we got off the plane close to midnight. The whole time we were on there, people were yelling at the flight attendants. It was one of the worst days to be a flight attendant in the world. They were just yelling at these people going, do something! Like a flight attendant is going to go, all right, fine. I'm going to get out there and just pull the plane over to the gate. What are they going to do? And yet they just kept going after these people. And after a while, they, it was not satisfying because the flight attendants hid behind those curtains, you know, in the galley. They just they put on the don't get out of your seat sign and they hid. <laughs> so they were like, who do we complain to? So they started complaining to each other. And you hear a lot of this, this is absolutely ridiculous. That's the last time I remember flying United. I'm going to cash out my miles. I'm going to American Airlines all the way. And we're grumbling. And at one point, I feel like there was this weird moment where everyone on the plane paused and goes, what's the use, really? Who are we complaining to? It's a bit stupid to grumble to flight attendants and to fellow passengers because neither of those parties has any power to do anything about this situation. You can grumble all you want, but you're still going to sit on this plane until the powers that be change reality. The only hope we ever drew was when the pilot came on and said, folks, I want you to know that I've been on the radio with the tower and with the airline's headquarters this whole time. I'm fighting hard for us, and we're almost there. That's the only time I ever felt any hope because finally somebody who's connected to someone with real power is advocating for us. I believe that kind of dynamic is at the heart of what allows us to not stop coming to God in prayer. The only way we're going to persevere in prayer and not give up going to him is if we truly believe that he's the only one now who has any real power or authority to do anything about our situation. And the, as long as I believe that, I will go to God in prayer. The minute I stop believing he has power and authority in my situation, I will stop praying. Here's what I'm really trying to say. I don't believe persevering prayer is a measure of our tenacity. I believe it is a measure of our faith. I don't believe we keep praying because we're stubborn people. If that's the only reason you keep praying, your prayers are sort of like the babbling of the pagans Jesus made fun of because you can keep running your mouth, but if it's not something coming out of faith, it's just words you're learning how to repeat. The Buddhists pray like that. Have you ever heard Buddhists pray? And the same thing over and over. It's like hypnotic. I almost want to buy a CD of Buddhist chants when I can't get to sleep because it's so hypnotic. It's soothing. But at some point, you got to wonder, are you even engaged with what you're saying? Is this a repeated prayer that comes out of faith? 
or out of sheer discipline and willpower. Jesus never taught us to pray like a Shaolin monk. Just over and over and over out of sheer discipline. Keep praying, keep praying. Keep. I've, I don't think I've ever heard Jesus give that message. But what he says is this. You will only pray as much as your true faith drives you to pray. So I, I, uh, here's what I believe. A, a weak prayer life is not a crisis of discipline. It's a crisis of belief. A weak prayer life is not a crisis of discipline. It is a crisis of belief. It's not that you're lazy. It's that you stopped believing that going to God matters. When you're really desperate, if anyone gives you an ounce of hope that they can help you, you will be on them like white on rice, won't you? It's like that when I'm walking around Manhattan and I see a panhandler, and if you even for a second make eye contact and show any niceness, you're like, hi, they're on you. They're Hey, bro, listen. Um, and they will walk with you 20 blocks until you give them something. Because when someone wants something, you give even a ray of hope like you're not a jerk. You actually made eye contact. It's game over because desperate need latches on. That's just the way it is. The minute they realize you're not going to ever give them anything, they'll disengage. They're with you because they believe you're going to give them something. And I really believe that our prayer life is driven by this belief that God is able. And when we stop believing God is able, we're going to stop praying. And every prayer you pray past that point of belief equals empty words. It's a discipline that doesn't gain anything. At our last CG gathering, um, we had a Christmas party. and It was the last gathering of the year. And we sat around and shared growth goals for 2014. As we part our ways until next year, what is a goal you have for your personal spiritual growth for next year that we can be praying for? And one of the brothers shared this, and it really moved me. And he said, I read the Bible, and there are people who had to wait for years, sometimes decades, to get what they were praying for, and they never got it. And here's me. I have trouble sometimes waiting days or weeks or even months to see God answer my prayer. And so his growth goal was for patient faith, that he'd give God a chance to answer his prayer, and he wouldn't stop waiting, stop praying after a couple months had passed. He wanted to learn what it was like to even wait a lifetime for Jesus to answer the prayers that were heaviest on his heart. That really encouraged me. I think that's the picture of what we're trying to describe here. Persevering faith, don't stop praying, equals don't stop believing that God is the one who is able to do what you're asking. Let me give you the other don't stop that I see in this parable. I was writing this last night, and I couldn't get that journey song out of my head. It's still there. It's like a a ghost. Um, Just a small-town boy. I was born and raised in South Detroit. Don't stop believing. I think it's unfortunate that we've made prayer so much an issue of discipline and willpower. Because I think in the end, every person prays as much as they really want to pray. I don't think the answer is to say, how much are you praying? Not enough. Pray more. I don't think that's the right medicine. I think we should look at our prayer. And when we see what our prayer life is telling us, we should address the real problem. And the real problem is rarely discipline. The real problem is usually belief. I hear too many people say things like, I should pray more, or I should pray harder, or I should pray more often. I said, maybe you should, but you would if you actually believed. 
And so don't start a sentence with, I should pray, but start with, what am I not believing? Why am I not praying? I know I'm desperate. I know I can't walk alone. Why don't I turn to God? What is it about him in my mind that doesn't draw me to pray? Because if you don't fix that unbelief, you will always have a weak prayer life. I really believe that with all my heart. I, I think that if, if you believe you're self-reliant, if you don't believe God is the one who has to carry you, you'll have a weak prayer life. Now, before I move on from that, I don't want to be too hard on people who are struggling with their prayer life because of unbelief. Here's why. I believe unanswered prayer is one of the greatest challenges to faith in the Christian life. I think there are people who really try to believe God and they pray earnestly. They say, God, I believe you're the only one who can help me. And they pray with all their hearts. And they pray not just for a day or a week or a month. Some people I know, they've prayed for years and at some point they reach their breaking point. And what they say is, I've prayed and prayed and prayed and yet God has never once answered this prayer. And they reach a limit where they say, I think I've just lost my faith. I believe I've come to the limit of my suspended disbelief. And I believe now the conclusion is God is not paying attention. What do you do when you pray for years and years for something? I just, you don't have to be specific about it. I just want to see a show. How many of you right now have something in your life you've been praying for for at least a year and God has yet to give you a positive answer to it? So a lot of us. Some of us, it's a personal affliction. It's, some of us, it's a longing for, for something. For others, it's because we want someone we love to come to Christ. And year after year, they just smirk. They lay around. They do their thing. And they never, ever get serious about faith. And it's breaking your heart because you know what they would be if they would walk with Jesus. And you see what they are without him. And you pray And you pray, and you pray, and there's no change in that person. In fact, for some people, the more you pray, the worse that person gets. Have you ever had that experience? I don't care. It's almost like my prayers are driving them away from Christ. Maybe I should stop praying and they'll become an evangelist. I don't know. And so for some people, unanswered prayer is the very thing which is starting to threaten their faith. And so I want to, is there any word of encouragement to offer people who have been praying for years and never heard the word yes from God. Let me just give you a couple encouragements if that's where you are right now. One is it's important that you don't stop believing that God is for you and not against you. God is for you and not against you. Have you ever thought about why in this parable the judge is described like this? Oops, wrong, wrong verse. That's what you get for copying and pasting. Verse 1 says this, In a certain town there was a judge who neither cared, neither feared God, nor cared about what people thought. I thought, why does a parable start with a judge described this way? Is Jesus trying to say that God is like that towards us? That he is so mighty, so above us, that when you pray, he doesn't have to listen to what you're saying? He's not saying that God is like that. He's saying that that's the way we're tempted to believe God is, especially when we're going over and over and God doesn't answer our prayers. I believe that unanswered prayer tempts us to believe that maybe God is like this judge. He doesn't care. And when unanswered prayer stays unanswered, one of the great threats to our faith is this. We become susceptible to lies that Satan speaks that threaten the way we believe about God. 
Unanswered prayer leads people to think like this. I heard one person put it this way. When I pray and I pray and God never answers with a yes, here's what I believe. Either he loves me and cares for me, but he's too weak to do anything, or he's powerful enough to do it, but just doesn't care enough about me to do it for me. In other words, God is either willing but not able, or he is able but not willing. How else would you explain the silence of heaven? How else do you explain that I've, I've demonstrated my need, pleaded with God with total faith, and yet he does not give me what I ask? How do you explain that? And for some people, they reach that point where they believe maybe it's true that God could, but he just doesn't care about me. Or maybe God would, except that he's not any stronger than I am. He wants to, but he can't send any help my way. Jesus said in John eight forty four, speaking of Satan, the devil, that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I think unanswered prayer opens up our hearts to these lies. I think Satan comes alongside of us during unanswered prayer, and he says things like, you know what? I don't think God really cares that much about this little story in your life. I think maybe if you stop sinning, God would pay more attention to you. He doesn't like you because of bad things you're doing. You can't pray right now. Or he says, you know, there are other people ahead of you in line who God cares about more. If you served in the church, if you volunteered at Seeds, maybe you'd be free of all this. Maybe he would say yes to you. There's so many lies we believe when answered prayer doesn't come. And I believe that unanswered prayer really is one of the greatest threats to our faith. I think there are people who used to go to this church who fell away from the faith entirely because they prayed for something. And for years and years they pleaded and God never said yes. And eventually they gave up on God because they believed that God had given up on them. That's why I believe that one of the ways to rescue a a struggling prayer life is to speak the truth to your own heart. It's one of the ways I start my own prayer life. I begin by saying some things almost every time I pray that are going to be true no matter what situation I'm in. I begin by saying this, God is for me and never against me. I also say, no matter what it feels like, God loves me and is on my side. I also say, God is powerful. He is able. If you don't say these things, then you will actually start with, in parentheses, doubts about these truths about God, and the lies will have greater power than the truth. So when you sit down to pray about something that matters to you, Practice the discipline of speaking the truth to your own heart because right now the enemy is speaking lots of lies with great diligence into your heart. One of the ways to rescue a struggling prayer life is to commit yourself to telling the truth as many times as you can. And here's the thing. Those things won't always feel true, but they will always be true. And if you don't begin your prayers with that perspective, your prayers will struggle for a very long time. Let me give you another thing that I believe you should never stop believing. Never stop believing that God wants to and is meeting your needs. Do you ever watch that 2000 film, um, Bedazzled, starring Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley? Anybody watch that? Pretty hilarious movie. This awkward IT worker is after the girl of his dreams, but he is awkward, uncool, powerless, 
Then he meets the devil, a very seductive devil in Elizabeth Hurley, and she grants him seven wishes. You can wish seven things, and I will give them to you exactly as you wish. So, but never make a deal with the devil because she gives him technically exactly what he asks for. And every time he asks for something, he asks for what he thinks this girl wants him to be. So he notices she likes sensitive guys. So he realizes, I want to be the most sensitive man in the world. And what does she do? The devil gives it to him. She makes him technically she answers the prayer, but she makes him so sappy and so sensitive he can't stop crying. And she's weirded out by him and she rejects him. So this is the way the devil answers prayer, right? His, hey, I want to be sensitive. Sure, I'll give that to you. But there's a twist. It's never quite what you ask for. And some of us actually believe that God answers prayer like that. Like we say, God, I want my life to be more interesting. And he sends you to deepest, darkest Africa to be a martyr. I didn't mean that. Interesting. I just meant like maybe a Ferrari or a better job. You know? And so I, maybe we have this distrust of God. That we ask God for things And he switches it around on us and gives us exactly what we don't want, even though technically he answered our prayer. But see, I don't think God is a liar. However, I don't think he always answers our prayer exactly the way we asked him to answer it. So we can express our hearts to God, but we should have this trust that when we express where our hearts are, God will often answer by giving us what we really need, what's best for us, not just exactly what we've asked for. When a child tells a parent, I'm hungry, that's a plea. And the response of the parent is loving. It may not be fun and exciting, but it's always loving. Here's meat and vegetables, not chocolate and marshmallows. I believe that sometimes unanswered prayer is not actually unanswered prayer. It's just that we're so fixated on what we want to receive that even if God is giving us something better, we can't see that he's doing that. I'm reminded of the episode in the Apostle Paul's life where he said that there was this thing, an affliction. And we don't know exactly what it is, but he called it the thorn in his flesh. And he said this is a thing that plagued him all his life, and he prayed consistently for God to remove it. In fact, he says three times, and I believe it wasn't just three times he prayed about this, three times he reached a breaking point. Such a significant point in his life where he said, if you don't take this away, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. And he pleaded with that kind of desperation to God three times. God, help me because beyond this day, I'm not going to make it if I have to live with this. And all three times, the answer the Apostle Paul heard back was what? No. But he didn't actually hear no. Here's what he heard instead. He heard, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, what God was doing was answering his prayers. But look back here at what it says in the, in the second part of verse 7. The reason God was answering the prayer this way was because his concern was for Paul's character and heart. He didn't want him to become conceited, which is another way of saying proudly independent, fiercely self-reliant, no longer in recognizing his need for God. He didn't want that to happen to Paul. And so in order to keep that from happening, God said, I'm going to let you keep this affliction, but I'm always going to make sure that I get you from today to tomorrow. I won't take the affliction away because the affliction may be the last line of defense between you and totally a godless life. 
a conceited, self-reliant, independent life, a life where you don't believe you desperately need me. And in order to keep you close to me, I will keep that affliction in your life. But you need to always know this, Paul. I have not ignored your prayer. I have answered your prayer, not by removing the affliction, but by giving you strength in the midst of it. It will not defeat you. It will plague you. It will bother you. It will drive you to your knees, but it will never defeat you. I think that's the way God is answering some of your prayers. You raised your hand, some of you, and said, I've been praying for a thing at least a year, and God's not answering. But examine your life again from a different lens. Could it be that God has been answering that prayer steadily, progressively, all along, but you missed the answer completely because it wasn't the yes you wanted to see? Sometimes God's no points us to God's yes in a very unexpected way. God's no points us to God's yes in a very unexpected way. I believe some of us will go home tonight and think about that unanswered prayer and realize that it hadn't been like this, if God hadn't allowed this to persist, then something else very important and necessary in our lives would never have happened. And what we're realizing is that God never stops caring about us, but the way God cares for us runs deeper than what we ask him to do for us. He's not, just, he's not just concerned about the circumstances of your life, but about the condition of your heart and how close or how far away you are from him. And so the way he answers our prayers is always going to be in a way that keeps us closest to him, not far. Let me just wrap up by saying this. At the very end of this parable, Jesus reveals that the context of the story is not just about a personal prayer life. It's about holding our faith until the end when Jesus returns. He's in the midst of this teaching about the return of, uh, about his return to earth, his second coming, and he gives this parable. And it's really related if you think about it. If we struggle to continue believing in God for the small dramas of our personal lives, Will we really endure in the faith to the end? Will we stay faithful to the day Jesus returns? He's saying, I'm going to come back, but when I come back, is there anybody who's still going to be waiting, expecting me? Or will unanswered prayer and the loss of faith scatter everybody away from me? Let me just give you this warning right now. The condition of your prayer life and the posture of faith and belief you have towards God is going to determine whether you make it to the end of this Christian journey or not. It's going to determine whether you finish or don't finish. And if you have the wrong perspective about God's silence, you might not make it to the end. Unanswered prayer is a huge challenge to the Christian faith best medicine for that doubt is to say the things that are true of God all the time. Look for him in unexpected ways. Realize that if you don't have him, you have no one and nothing. Do not give up praying. Do not give up believing. Because if you stop that, you lose everything. I want to ask if you bow with me. I think some of us this morning, having come to church, are not in a place of crisis. We're fairly comfortable. Things are going okay. 
And so maybe it's hard to track with a message like this. If that's the case, tuck it away in your memory. Pull it out on a day when you need it. But I think this message this morning is for a few people in particular in our congregation who are teetering on the edge of unbelief. Because what they've been praying for isn't something trivial. It is for them almost a a matter of life and death. And the fact that they pray and they pray and they pray and many days God seems to be totally silent is killing them. If that describes you, here's what I want to ask you to pray right now. Speak the truth about who God is to your own heart. Fight against the lies that are being whispered to you. Pray with me right now. God, it doesn't feel true, but I know it is true. You are for me and not against me. You are not just able, but you are willing to help me. I'm not hopeless. This is not the way my story ends. I'm going to wait for you. Just like that dog hopes beyond hope for a scrap of meat to fall. What other table do I have to go? I'm going to wait right here. I'm not going to stop going to you because there's nobody else I have but you. just pray that for a few moments consider the state of your prayer life as you sit here this morning last night I thought long and hard about my own prayer life I think when we think about our prayer lives and don't walk away feeling good about it repentance is in order but we need to be careful what we repent of Don't simply say, God, I'm sorry I don't pray more. Please don't say that. You pray as much as your faith drives you to pray. Don't confess that you don't pray more. Confess you stopped at some point believing in Him. Confess that you think your problems are bigger than the power of God. Confess that you actually started believing He didn't care about you. That He's not paying attention to you. Let's confess unbelief, not undisciplined. I believe God wants our church to grow in prayer. I believe He wants me to grow in prayer. And the way we're going to grow in prayer is to grow in faith. So think for a minute where you are in your prayer life. And then respond to God appropriately. God, help me believe you so that I will pray from an earnest heart. Let's just pray about that for a few minutes. Let's pray together. Lord, we're especially heavy-hearted and burdened along with those members of our church family who've been carrying something heavy around in their hearts for a very long time. 
It's a greater weight than they can bear by themselves. They care deeply about what happens in this area of their lives. And yet as hard as they pray, as much as they want to believe, nothing seems to be happening. Lord, we acknowledge that for those friends, their faith is hanging on a string. So we pray a few things for them. That you will shut the mouth of the enemy from speaking his lies. That Holy Spirit, you will begin to shout true things to their heart. That no matter what it feels like, these things are always true. You are for us and never against us. There's nothing that is impossible for you. You are able to do all that we ask or imagine and more. That you have never once stopped loving us. You have never once stopped paying attention to us. And knowing those things, Encourage our brothers and sisters to not give up turning to you. That beyond all hope, they would continue to come to you because you're the only one who can. Fight for our faith, God. We also pray, Lord, that if you have been sending help and they've missed it, the help has come in a way they didn't expect or want, then we pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts to see that all the time they've been praying, you have been giving them what they most needed. You've been answering their prayers in a way that holds them close to you. So open the eyes of their hearts. Let all those who can't see you finally see you in their life. finally, we just pray that you would make us a praying church. But not the kind of church that prays simply out of an act of will and discipline, but because we believe you with all our hearts. And that because we believe you, we turn to you again and again and again, believing and persevering. And we pray that you will hold our faith together till the end. So that should we be alive on the day you return, you will find us faithful. And you will find us full of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.